Good morning. Welcome to North Wake. Those of you that uh, are visiting with us, we're glad to have you today. And those of you that ought to be here, we're glad to have you here too as well. Um, it's been an interesting couple weeks. Um, been a lot going on around here and not a lot of people here. So um, it's been quite interesting, quite challenging, but been a really good, good time uh, for our church. Just people serving and going and um, using their summers well for the glory of God, which has been an outstanding thing. And I uh, just want to encourage you in that and encourage you in, in what, uh, that you are running hard and pushing the elders to keep up, which is a good thing. It's a very good thing. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to finish the chapter. We stopped at verse 22 last week and we'll go through 11.1 today. So if you want to get your Bibles out and turn there. We are continuing our study in 1 Corinthians, which we've entitled Be the Church. And Next week, Larry will be back with us and I will hand it off to him right before we get to the head coverings. Thank the Lord. And I'm going on vacation. Um, so you can read ahead and prepare for that and, um, and be ready for how he works his magic with that. Um, very thankful for Larry and what he does. Um, today, however, we're going to be dealing with what it means to glorify God and be the church where we are in our city, in our world. So... As you turn to that passage, um, let's, let's pray. Let's ask God to do what only he can do. God, we, we do. We gather here today as your church, as your people. Sinners saved by the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And our faith in that alone. We gather to worship you above all things and to sit under the authority of your word. It really is from this humble posture that we entreat you, that we ask you, beg of you to teach us. Teach us how to live. Teach us how to love. How to live a life that glorifies you. And loves the people you love. We acknowledge that this time is really wasted. Unless you, the Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, convict us, and change us. So we ask all of this in the name of the one who bought it all for us. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you're a Christian and you live in this pagan secular culture you're continually faced with many 
interesting ethical dilemmas and questions. Such as, how do I interact with the gay couple down the street? How do I approach the issue of alcohol with my coworkers? How do I judge certain kinds of music or certain kinds of clothing? Do I accept the invitation to have dinner in the home of my unbelieving neighbor? What if they offer me a glass of wine? What do I do? How do I know what's inbounds and what's out of bounds? What's acceptable and not? And how, how do you resolve the tension? How do you resolve the tension of being a believer who's been called out of the world but still lives in the world? How do you... How do you resolve that? How do you still glorify God and love the people that Christ died for? How do you do that well? Well, in our passage today, Paul sums up pretty much all of that. So he's going to focus us on the practical Christian living right in the middle of a pagan society? How do you live a free and holy life before a watching world? What does that look like? It doesn't doesn't get much more practical than today. Okay? So if you've been kind of breezing through 1 Corinthians and kind of trudging along, falling asleep, waking up, falling asleep, today's the day to wake up. Okay? This is where we live. This is who we are. So get your paper out and your pen, open your Bible, and let's let's jump right in. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, remember, we've, as we've studied through 1 Corinthians, this is Paul's letter back to the church at Corinth for letters they had written him and asked him some questions about certain things. And the quote, the Corinthian quote, that all things are lawful has come up before. And Paul is ending a long argument that has stretched from chapter 8 to the end of chapter the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1. And he has summoned it all up and concluding all those things that he has shown us how to use our freedom and when we give up our freedom and our rights for the sake of the gospel and not to hinder the gospel going forth. He's shown us all of those things in his own life and in the life of the church and now he sums it all up. You see... Ethical problems in the church arise and the church gets all befuddled because it's, it gets all messed up when 
over clear absolutes and gray areas and which one's which and how do you answer the questions we were talking about just a second ago. And there are two types of people in the church. People who like absolutes and try to eliminate all gray areas and people who love gray areas and try to eliminate all absolutes. And that brings desperate confusion. But the reality of Christian freedom is that it's governed by absolutes. And they work almost like bookends. When, my, when I was growing up, my dad had this library and study, and he had these bookends, and they were amazing. They were these huge pieces of marble that were ornately carved and beautiful and heavy. If you dropped one of those on your foot, you were, you were going to the hospital. Okay, that was, it was holding up volumes and volumes of books on each end. And they were beautiful, but they had a function, not just to be ornate and beautiful, but they were to hold the ends of the bookshelf so that books didn't spill off into the floor. And they didn't create so much pressure that you couldn't remove a book or the books couldn't move within there in a proper manner. But they held it in line and they were beautiful. Today, that's what Paul is going to share with us. He's going to share the beautiful bookends of the Christian life. And he even structures his conclusion that way. The first bookend that we come into these first two verses is this. Everything is lawful, but not everything is helpful. Everything is lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. The two beautiful, ornate bookends. The glory of God and the love of neighbor. And this first one, the love of neighbor, is huge. You see, he says, you can argue what you want about your freedom. That your freedom gives you the ability to do whatever you want. However, Paul reminds us that our freedom is to be constrained by the overriding obligation to our neighbor. You know, some of us never put away childish things. One of my most regretful statements as a teenager was to my mom. In the midst of my rebellion to my parents, I remember telling them, don't worry about me, I got it all taken care of. I can handle it. I'm a big boy now. It's just foolish. It's foolish. Childish foolishness. All things might be lawful, but not everything is helpful. And not everything builds up the individual or the church of God. When was the last time that you constrained your freedom because you thought it might hurt someone else or this church? 
When was the last time that you said no to something because it did not build up someone else or this church? The governing ethic of the church is to love our neighbors as Jesus said we should. Matthew twenty two thirty six through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commands depends the law and the prophets. Nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. Now there's no more un-American statement than you... That, I mean, seriously. Think about that for a minute. We have a Declaration of Independence. We have a Bill of Rights. We are the land of the free and the home of the brave. Is someone singing yet? Do I hear? That, that's who we are. We're the poster children for individual freedoms and rights and personal dreams and doing whatever it takes to reach those dreams, even if it's smashing somebody else in the process. That's who we are. We love the underdog. Why? Because it looks like he's not going to achieve his dreams, and then he does. That's who we are. It's so bred into us that sometimes we can't even see the world around us outside of those lenses. So when Paul says, you should not seek your own good, but the good of your neighbor, it is radically counterintuitive to the way that you and I live and think. The Bible doesn't say, well, you're absolutely free to do whatever you want. And it doesn't say that you're bound by the letter of the law either. No, Paul's making it crystal clear to the church that you are free. You are free. But you have to factor in other people because God loves them too. And he created them in his image as well. And you and the way you live reflect that. You see, the heart of the gospel, Jesus proclaims it from the living room of a sinful tax collector in Luke 19, 9 and 10. And he says, today salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. To serve others who were lost. To bring salvation to those who were lost. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the incarnation of Christ. The love of neighbor governs all freedom. So Paul takes this overarching ethic of neighbor love and he brings it right down to Main Street. Verse 25, he says this, eat whatever is sold in the market. Eat, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question of the ground of conscience. You're free. Christ has set you free. You no longer are bound. 
by the law and by all of the regulations. Therefore, Paul quotes Psalm 24.1 and he says, all of it. All of it is God's. All of it. The origin of all of the food that they're talking about, the origin of all things, is God. God's the creator of it all. The food in and of itself is not the overarching moral barometer. The do's and the don't do's is not the overarching moral barometer. Because not everything is beneficial, helpful, and not every moment is an edifying one. So with inside these bookends, we're moving now. Okay? Because you've been set free to live inside these bookends and to live for the glory of God. It's neighbor love. That's our ethical guide. See, Paul imagines a dinner party given by non-Christian people in Corinth that members of the church would be attending. Paul wants the Corinthians to go be free to eat whatever is put in front of them with joy and thankfulness. Without the inward struggle of, should I do this? Should I not do this? Worship well in it. That's what he wants. And here's where I want to stop us for just a second. Because there's something going on that we need to understand and we need to think deeply about. What does it mean to be the church? in a secular pagan society. You see, too many Christians, us included, find our entire identity by attending a worship service like this one right here. We just punch our, punch our ticket on Sunday, we're good, we go, we live like we live, and we come back, we punch our ticket again. Now, it's a vital part of the life of the church to assemble for worship and glorification of God. We're not to forsake that. The scriptures teach us very clearly. But if this is where our connection to being the church ends, we may only be feeding the idols of consumerism. Just coming, getting our little fill, walking away, we're good. If we are to be the church, should we not be his people outside that door and embody the gospel in our daily life? Is that not what we've been called to be? Paul sees this as the normal mission of God being worked out through the church in a secular culture. I mean, he makes this point because he's like, you're going to be invited, so you should figure out how you're going to handle that. It's just commonplace. You live in a secular, you got friends that are not believers, you're going to be hanging out with them, and you're going to be put in this situation. That's where you're going to be. That's what you're doing. That's who you are. It's just the common life of the church that we would have unbelieving friends and co-workers, that they would have those 
that we would have those friends in our own homes and then actually receive invitations from them to go to their homes. And then with that interchange, there would be some ethical decisions that we would have to make along the way. However, you and I know that that's not always our experience. Because the church is often lazy. I'm lazy. Sinfulness in my heart hardens my heart against this process. And laziness in the church leads to two different camps. It leads to those people that love absolutes, those kind of the fundamental new law party over here. And then you got the liberal kind of gray party going on over here. And one of those two places is probably where you fall mostly or where if you're squeezed, you're headed. You know, for some of us in the more fundamental camp, for us to live on mission seriously and actively pursue relationships with non-believers is going to take a seismic shift. Because you have spent, I mean, it really is. It's going to be a 180 in your ideology and what you do. You're almost going to have to have like a second conversion experience with your eyes are open to the mission of God. It's going to require some deep repentance from the idols we have been serving for years. The idols of religion, isolationism and comfort and safety and pride and fear. The idol of the white picket fence American Christian subculture. Idols that have completely insulated and isolated us from the unbelieving world. And most of us have spent years building that. We have our little Christian friends and our little Christian church and our little Christian community in the suburbs where it's nice and safe and good place to raise our kids. And we've insulated ourselves. We go to the seminary. We live on the seminary campus. We work in a church. We don't ever bump up against lost people. Is that really what it means to live out your freedom for the glory of God and the love of neighbor. See, it even governs ethically the decisions you make about where you live and how you live, not just these cultural questions, but it's a total shift. And Paul seems to think that that's what it means to be a believer, to live in the world. For others of us, the more liberal camp, um, to take mission seriously is to infuse the existing relationships we already have with the gospel. And that's no cakewalk either. Because those of us in this camp, the gray camp, we like the gray camp because you don't really have to make a stand on anything. You can just kind of kind of be easygoing and it's good. It's all good. It's going to require the same type of ideological shift in our, in our world as well. And we're going to have to repent, repent of the idols we have been serving for years, the idols of acceptance and tolerance 
of the fear of man in the American pop Christian soap culture that says, you know, yeah, you know, it's I have friends that are Muslims and Hindus and atheists, and we just kind of hang out and talk about general things. Is that really the way to glorify God and to love your neighbor? I mean, it's hip and cool and all, but, you know, we just sit around, drink beers, and hang out. Just talk about whatever they want to talk about. Is that really God-glorifying and neighbor-loving? Is, is it lawful? Sure. Is it beneficial? Is it build up? I'm not so sure. Leslie Newbigin writes this, I do not believe that the role of the church is in a secular society is primarily exercised in the corporate actions of the church as organized bodies in political and cultural fields. On the contrary, I believe that it is exercised through the action of Christian lay people playing their roles as citizens, workers, friends, managers, and legislators. You see, this seemed to be the normal life for the early church. That they would gather and scatter but they were just as much the church scattered as they were the church when they were gathered. So, if we did that, I think we might have more questions. Some of these same confusing questions that Paul addresses in the rest of our chapter. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean for your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of what that for which I give thanks? Christian freedom, free to eat. Free to drink. But what if a brother comes to you and says, you know, I'm not so sure about that. Not so sure that that's a great way for us to worship God. What do you do then? You're free. You're free. You're free to love him well. You see, you're not bound to live this rebellious freedom free life. You're bound by the glory of God and the love of neighbor. And so how do you do that well? What do you do with that? If a brother comes to you, I shouldn't be, 
I shouldn't be governed by somebody else's conscience. I can't help it if he's weak and he doesn't understand the Bible. I can't help it that he had these idols in his life and he can't handle drinking one beer. The most beautiful illustration of this in my own life happened when I first started hanging out with my wife's family. They, um, they often drink wine with, with their dinner. And my future father-in-law at that point knew that I had been saved out of an alcoholic and drug addictive past. And we had had long talks about that. And first time I came to their house before dinner, he pulled me aside into his study. And he said, it is my conviction that I am free to drink wine with my meal. And we do that often here, and that's not a big issue. But it's a big issue when you're here. And I need to know that does my drinking of this wine in any way break your conscience and tempt you? Because we will abstain while you're here. I had never in my life encountered anything like that. This man knew the gospel. He was free. But he was bound by the love of neighbor and the love of another who might have an issue. I wonder... Is that the way you think? Is that the way you think about the people in this room when they might bring something to you that's what you feel a gray area or within your freedom? Are you willing to lay that down? You see... My father-in-law's conscience was not dictated by mine. His conscience in that moment was dictated by the gospel. That he had been set free, but free to glory God, glorify God, and to love me well. It's an amazing thing. The heart of the gospel is governed by the love of neighbor for the glory of God. Verse 31 and 32. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. The great conclusion that Paul sums this whole piece up with is everything that a Christian needs to know about living a holy life before a watching world is this. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whether it's eat or drink, whatever, do it all for the glory of God. And that is proper worship. And that is the second beautiful bookend of Christian freedom. Everything 
is an opportunity to glorify God every minute of your day from the time your feet hit the ground to the time you go to sleep at night. Everything that packs into that, those hours of the day are opportunities to glorify God. Now, oftentimes we choose, as we talked about last week, to chase after things that make us happy rather than glorify God. And here's the hard truth. When we use our freedom to blow past these bookends, there's no happiness out there. There's nothing out there that will satisfy you. Nothing satisfies the human heart other than God himself. But it's amazing how it's our propensity to just blow past those bookends, to not see how beautiful they are, to proclaim our freedom and wind up miserable, depressed, and in despair. We were created for God's glory, and God's glory will be our only true happiness in this life and the life to come. That's it. So as you love other people, once again, he comes back to the first book in, don't give offense to anyone, Jews, Greeks, the church. So when you're hanging out with your friends, you have to be intentional, he's saying. When you're with your unbelieving friends, how you act, how you eat, where you go, what you drink, must bring glory to God and help you introduce them to Jesus. If it is a hindrance, then throw it off. Abstain. Yes, you're free. But your main priority in that freedom is for them to hear the good news of the gospel by what you say and how you live. And with your believing friends, the same holds true. How you act, how you, what you eat, where you go, what you drink, what you talk about, either glorifies God and builds them up or it doesn't. It is not ultimately about your freedom to wax about whatever It's about your friends, once again, seeing and hearing the gospel from you. Hebrews 3, exhort one another today as it's called today so that your heart won't grow hard and you won't fall away from the living God. You have to be intentional. It's not that you can't talk about silly stuff, but if it crosses the line, busts out of the bookends, of what loves your neighbor and glorifies God, then it's out of bounds. You see, this message was not just counterintuitive to us. It had to be a hard pill to swallow in Corinth as well. And Paul anticipated some moaning and groaning from the congregation. Easier said than done, Paul. Sounds too absolute, Paul. Is there a little more gray? And I'm sure you've had some similar things in your heart as we've been, well, as I've been talking to you. You haven't really been talking to me, but 
Easier said than done, Jeff. You don't know my neighbor. He's like Satan. Easier said than done, Jeff. You don't know what I might lose and what I would have to do to turn my relationship with my friends, my unbelieving friends, toward the gospel. Easier said than done, Jeff. You don't know how scared I am to open my life up to people who don't know Christ. I might get hurt. They might influence my kids. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Love your neighbor above yourself. Paul, in anticipation to those types of groanings, finishes the passage like this. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul always tried to do what was best for others, not for himself. And in that, he had been copying Christ, the Messiah himself, Romans 15 tells us this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Have you ever seen a demonstration of neighbor love and the glorification of God like you have in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There isn't one. And Paul says, be imitators of me, but not just imitators of me because look who I'm looking at. Look who I'm imitating. It doesn't stop with Paul. And it shouldn't stop with you. You shouldn't be living with your friends and saying, hey, do what I do. No, don't do what I do. The only thing that you need to follow with me is whatever Christ is doing in me and through me. Paul had laid his life down, seeking not his own advantage, but so that many might be saved. Could you say the same thing? Could you say that your primary objective today when you woke up was whatever you could do for other people in order that they may be saved? Or was it about you? Was it about your little fundamentalist camp or your little liberal camp I'm going to go check my card at church this morning and then I'm going to go do what I want to do. Is that it? Paul's life was not the end goal. Christ's was. It's all for the king. So as we prepare to respond, let me give you three questions. 
for application. Are you anywhere where you could be seen or heard? Have you stepped out of your little Kevlar cocoon and just lived out in the world for a little while? We used to joke about this, but it's really not a joke. It's really sad. We joked about it on staff because we wanted to keep from it. But the, we used to call it Trotterville. That we would build this place that had a moat with a 10-foot fence and razor wire on top, and you had to show your card to get in, and you know we weren't letting anybody else in, and we will all just live together in this little holy huddle. And wouldn't life be great? I can't think of, like, that just seems like hell on earth to me. Boring. It doesn't line up with the mission of God. What? Why should we? But that's what we are all doing, and I am as guilty as anyone of losing focus in that area. Where are you being seen and heard? What do you need to repent of in order that you can walk in obedience, engage lost people in a real and authentic way? I'm not talking about the way that the Jehovah's Witness come to my house and bang on my door and bother me when I don't want to be bothered. I'm talking about really getting into people's lives and actually having a relationship with them and actually spending time with them and actually having to make some decisions about what's ethical or not, what glorifies God and what doesn't. Because you're right in the middle of it. It's all going on all around you. And you're there as a light to be seen and heard. Where's the idol of freedom hindering the advance of the gospel in your life? Have you been set free from your sin, slavery of sin, in order just to pick up another idol yourself? What do you need to repent of in order to put the glory of God and the love of neighbor above yourself? And lastly, where do we as a church need to repent corporately of seeking our own advantage over the many that may be saved. That's the one that's crushed me this week. Because I have an individual part to play, but we also have a corporate part to play. And how should we walk out of those doors today in obedience to and in line with the example of Paul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have lots to repent of. but you've been kind to us today. You have allowed us to look into the mirror of your word and you have allowed your Holy Spirit to prick the areas of our own hearts and lives that need to walk in obedience to you 
that need to use our freedom governed by the glory of God and the love of neighbor for your mission and the salvation of many. Help us to repent well today, Jesus. Help us to turn from our idols, to crush them, to lay them at your feet. And to serve our city and our world gladly and joyfully because you humbled yourself and served us. May we go and do likewise. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to end today.